Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Gilded Age West, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Cowboy Life. While cattle driving has a long and storied history in the American Southwest, it wasn't until the 1860s that large amounts of longhorn cattle were rounded up in Texas and driven north. Cattle drives usually ended in a town with a railroad, usually located somewhere in Missouri or Kansas, and cattle were then shipped by railway to cities like Chicago or New York, where they were sold and butchered in large slaughterhouses. The first attempt at a cattle drive occurred in 1866, and cattle were driven from Corpus Christi, Texas, to Sedalia, Missouri, just east of Kansas City, where there was a railroad. These animals then went through northwest Arkansas, and many of their horns got caught in the Ozark trees. But the most famous of all was the Chisholm Trail, from San Antonio, Texas, to Abilene, Kansas, where there was a shipping yard and a railroad. From Abilene, Cattle were then transported via railroad to Chicago slaughterhouses. Over time, there were battles between large ranchers who wanted to enclose the range for their herds and free-grazed cattle drivers who believed that the land should be open to all. And there is actually a movie called Open Range with Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner that basically shows how rich landowners tried to monopolize the land and squeeze everyone else out. And this ties into our next point, that life as a cowboy was neither fun nor romantic, like in the movies. These were not rugged, frontier individualists dueling in the streets to protect virtuous women or run out an out-of-control gang. Cowboys were mostly wage earners working for large landowners and cattle corporations. In fact, these men were denigrated by so-called cattlemen, who viewed themselves as civilized and cultured gentlemen against the rough and uncouth cowboys. And note the use of gendered language, men and boys, to illustrate how these landowners viewed themselves against their employees. We also have myths about the Wild West shootout. In reality, guns were used primarily to protect the herd from wild or diseased animals, not for shooting outlaws. But this does not mean that there was not a lot of violence. In fact, there was a ton of murder in the Wild West. But these were drunks, coming up behind someone at a poker table and shooting them in the back of the head. This is the same way that Wild Bill Hickok died, when he was shot holding a pair of black aces and eights, which is now called the dead man's hand. Another myth of cowboy life was the race of cowboys. Cowboys were not all white. Over 25% of them were black, 12% were Mexican, and numerous Indians and Asians also served as cowboys. Another myth is the romantic image of life on the range. In fact, cowboy life was very monotonous, tiring, and dangerous, with a typical cattle drive lasting over three months. You usually worked over 14 hours on the trail, and river crossings were very dangerous killing men and cattle alike. I mean, have you ever played the Oregon Trail? I die every single time I try to ford a river. 
or cholera ends up getting me in the end. Now, the heyday of cattle drives was from 1866 to 1886, so only really a 20-year period. And drives eventually ended due to overgrazing, bad weather, conflicts with ranchers, and the extension of railroads into Texas. Regardless of their short lifespan, they left an indelible mark on the American consciousness that is illustrated in the massive outpouring of dime novels, comic books, radio programs, television shows, and movies that influenced generations of Americans. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Railroads. For some time, Americans had discussed building a transcontinental railroad, and this was very important for shipping, westward expansion, and psychological reasons. While there were already several railroads that connected the East Coast to the American heartland, there still wasn't one that connected the heartland to the West Coast. And before the American Civil War, many Americans argued about exactly where it should be built. Southerners obviously wanted it in the South, supposing that it should stretch from New Orleans through Texas and into Southern California in order to boost the economy of the slave states, while Northerners wanted it in the North, stretching from Chicago to Sacramento or San Francisco, California. When the Confederate states seceded, their congressmen walked out, and Northerners could now pass whatever they wanted. Thus, in 1862, the 37th Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act, authorizing the construction of the railroad from Omaha to Sacramento. Now, we already covered this, but just to recap, the government gave land to two private companies to build these lines, the Central Pacific, which started in Sacramento and built eastward, and the Union Pacific, which started in Omaha and built westward. The laborers who worked on this project were mostly Chinese and Irish immigrants who worked for as little as $30 a month. And this was very dangerous and difficult work, with Indian attacks, avalanches, snowdrifts, huge mountains, which caused thousands of injuries and unknown number of deaths. However, if there's a consistent theme in human history, it is that you can build great things if you're just willing to throw untold amounts of death and misery at it. I mean, look at the pyramids and the Great Wall of China. Thus, in May of 1869, the two companies met at Promontory, Utah, and drove a golden spike into the ground, signaling the connection of the continent. Not only was the transcontinental a huge project, but railroads in general were the single biggest industry in the United States. From 1870 to 1890, over 40,000 new miles of tracks were laid in the United States. And in order to aid efficiency, by the mid-1800s, the width of railroad tracks had been standardized to ease connections. Railroad construction created a huge demand for steel, raw materials, and coal that fueled those extractive industries in the West that I described earlier. And to illustrate how big the railroad business was, by 1890, one single railroad company, the Pennsylvania Railroad, had 110,000 employees. And by comparison, the United States Armed Forces had less than 40,000, and the U.S. Postal Service, the biggest and the best in the world, had 90,000 employees. 
the massive amount of railroads allowed the United States economy to operate on a national and global scale. And because of them, raw materials could be shipped to factories and finished goods could be shipped to the consumers. And most importantly, goods could be moved quickly any time of the year. For instance, cattle could be raised in Texas or the Dakotas, fattened in Iowa, slaughtered in Chicago, and then sold as food in New York City. And this is a truly nationally connected economy. Because of the size of the railroad industry, their influence was so great that they even changed the concept of time itself. A group of railroad companies eventually sponsored the idea of creating four time zones with time being identical within each zone. Now before this, communities had set clocks according to when the sun showed it was noon. So for example, time in Savannah, Georgia was 30 minutes ahead of that in Atlanta. But by 1883, time was standardized, and this cannot be overstated. This allowed the standardization of shipping. It allowed people to coordinate schedules across vast distances. And from now on, people did not live according to the seasons or where the sun was in the sky, but by what a mechanical clock told them. And this is a true revolution in the way people lived. However, while railroads were big business, they created a large amount of resentment by the fees that they charged for shipping, the large amounts of land they took, and their ability to run roughshod over the common individual, as well as their massive influence over corrupt politicians. This would eventually lead to several political upheavals culminating with the populist revolt of the 1890s. But that is a story for another day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Westward Settlement. As the railroads moved west, so too did the people. Now we already covered this in the Civil War lecture, but I'll restate it here in case you missed it. Contrary to what many believe, settlers rarely went west in individual covered wagons. Instead, they followed the railroads. Settlers often bought land from railroad companies who owned the land around their tracks, and these were then sold at inflated prices. You see, the government had given land to these companies for free to encourage railroad construction, and this often led to a lot of abuse and corruption, with the people often holding the bag at the end of a bad deal. However, settlers also got land from the United States government. In the 1780s, Congress decided that western lands that had not already been settled belonged to the American people, with the federal government as its custodian. So land in western territories, in later states, did not belong to those individual states, but rather was controlled by the federal government. And for decades, the federal government sold land to the people. This is what allowed the 37th Congress to pass the Homestead Act in 1862 which said that the head of any family could claim 160 acres for a small registration fee in an agreement to live on it for five years. In the 1880s, the land office in the Dakotas gave away almost 2 million acres under the Homestead Act. But the biggest sale occurred in 1889 with a huge land giveaway in Oklahoma, and in less than a day, over 2 million acres were claimed. Many came before the land was officially declared open to survey 
so that they could bolt for it the day that the land rush opened up on April 22nd, 1889. Thus, Oklahoma has ever since been called the Sooner State. Now go ahead and click on a link on the PowerPoint to see a video on YouTube from the movie Far and Away starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, which depicts this land grab. Okay, so did you watch it? They look so young in that movie. Anyway. These statistics should illustrate that the pivotal role that the federal government played in settling the country. From the first founding of Jamestown in 1607, all the way to 1870, 40 million acres of U.S. land was settled and farmed. But from 1870 to 1900, over 4 million acres were settled. And this proves the federal government was crucial as a custodian of public lands. Another example of settling the West and benefiting the public comes in 1862, when Congress passed the Merrill Land Grant Act. The federal government gave states blocks of public land that could be sold to raise money to fund state universities. And these universities were supposed to be more practical, agricultural, or mechanical colleges to teach the people the best farming or industrial techniques to settle and exploit Western resources. This act led to the creation of the universities of California, Illinois, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Texas A&M, and yes, even Arkansas. Because the University of Arkansas was originally called Arkansas Industrial University. So you owe your education at a top R1 university to an act of Congress in 1862. You're welcome. However, as I said before, history is about balance. And while these acts benefited white settlement of the West, they also directly led to genocide of Native peoples and an environmental catastrophe that culminated in the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. In addition, many African Americans could not benefit from these policies, which will be a consistent theme of American history. Legislation that benefits whites, but is not equally applied to other races. Before we move on, I want to make one final point. The West has often been called the frontier, insinuating that it was wide open in unsettled land. And obviously this is false, as tens of thousands of native peoples lived there prior to white American encroachment. Many Americans viewed the West as a symbol of freedom, of individuality, and of opportunity, a safety valve for society, if you will. And as the old saying went, go West, young man, as prosperity could be found there. So it's a hard to imagine the shock to many white Americans when in 1890, the U.S. Census Bureau declared that the frontier was gone, meaning that it had been settled and developed. This led the historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, to deliver a famous essay in 1893 called The Significance of the Frontier in American History. Among other things, he argued that the American character depended on the fresh starts offered by the frontier, and he asked what would happen to the country without the frontier that was so pivotal to Americans. And some elite white Americans decided that if the West, the frontier, was closed, it was time to find new lands to conquer and exploit. But that is a story for another day. 
please advance to the last slide entitled, The West in American Memory. I want to dispel the myth that illustrates that the West is a symbol of American rugged individualism, despite all the facts to the contrary. In most popular culture, novels, TV, movies, and etc., we all have the image of a small covered wagon moving west, settling a barren plot of land, establishing a homestead, and cutting out a living for themselves on the frontier. We imagine that there were many opportunities to get rich in the West, gold rushes and land grabs and etc. We envision gold rushers striking it rich, or cowboys having an honorable and praiseworthy life. And we have this image of ruthless Indians and good honest cowboys locked in a struggle of savagery against civilization. But in fact, the romanticized West is not accurate. In reality, instead of the West being dotted with many self-sufficient rural farms, the West was dominated by big business. Railroad companies, logging companies, mining companies, oil companies, all owned huge swaths of land and regularly received government subsidies for their benefit under the guise of fueling development. Now, the positive side is that Western development was fueled by government investment and could not happen without it. But it also contains a negative side that this bred corruption and inequality, as small farmers usually fell prey to larger ranchers who set up their own companies and corporations to maximize capital investment and returns. On the one side, we say it's a good thing for the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railroad Act, and other government legislation. But there are also downsides too, because speculation does occur. Railroads are very corrupt and greedy, and these legislations, even though they have good intentions, they had negative consequences as well. The point is to show complex nuance here. It isn't a simple answer either way. Furthermore, cowboy and frontier life was not fun. It was hard, thankless work, with little pay and many things that could go wrong. Murder rates were high, and there were numerous ways to be cheated or destroyed. So while portrayals of the West emphasized traditional gender norms, in fact, women took on greater roles and helped build the West with the sweat of their brows. And this would continue to illustrate their need for political rights. Which is why the Western states would be the first to give women the state vote, because of this frontier experience with more balanced gender norms. Furthermore, we need to dispel the myth of whites against natives, because the entire West is a racial mixing ground of white and black Americans, newly arrived Europeans, Native Americans, Mexicans, Chinese, and other numerous Latino groups. So, in a country that is used to a binary of racial issues, white versus black or white versus native, this poses a vexing question about race and who belongs in the country. And this will fuel the rise of pseudoscientific racist arguments to bolster white supremacist ideologies that justified colonialism, imperialism, and genocide. Thus, racial science derived in American Western experience will later have unfathomable consequences. Another point is that rather than rugged individualism, Western development was fueled by government investment. 
Western development simply is not possible without capital subsidies, land grants, and irrigation projects, all funded and led by the United States government and paid for by citizen tax dollars. And it is a point of irony that so many in the West will continue to view it as an area of rugged individualism when in fact it only exists because of federal investment. Western development also poses a huge environmental consequence. While the Homestead Act, the railroads and irrigation projects were all well-intentioned for the most part to aid settlement and prosperity, they will have horrific environmental consequences. See, there's not enough rainfall in this area, and older agricultural practices and the overusage of land will create the conditions that will one day lead to the Great Dust Bowl in the 1930s. And to this day, water rights, the use of chemicals and pesticides, and land usage are all vexing environmental issues that defy simple solutions. So, where do all these myths come from? Part of it is on the part of the politicians, but also, popular culture reinforces these stereotypes, like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which traveled all over the United States, Canada, and even Europe, visiting Paris, London, and Berlin, and this gave Europeans a stereotypical image of the Wild Wild West. Movies and television also reinforced these images, like Roy Rogers, Gunsmoke, and Bonanza, though some recent popular culture is more balanced, like Dances with Wolves, Geronimal, and Hostiles, just to name a few. See, memory is political collateral. Many will argue that the West is proof that Americans don't need the government's involvement, citing this mythic, rugged individualism in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap mentality. But clearly this is untrue given the amount of federal investment. Likewise, those who point to the West as a product of government investment also missed an important side effect, corruption and environmental disaster. The point is that the truth lies somewhere in between, and this gives us a good example of how partisans use memory to evoke certain images and viewpoints that support their particular message. And our purpose here is to move beyond this myth, to see nuance and complexity, because the answer is never simple or straightforward. And that's okay. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.